Hello and welcome to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a series of podcasts from the writer's block Cornwall looking at creativity and creative writing through a time of change. The writer's block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall where we champion the writer in everyone. I am Polly Roberts, a writer and member of the Writer's Block team, and I'll be talking with Cornwall-based writers who worked with us through summer 2020. We hope you find some inspiration and wisdom in what you hear. In today's podcast, I am chatting with author, editor, creative writing tutor and lecturer, Anna Wilson. Anna began her career as an editor for picture books and went on to write over 50 books for children. Her books have been chosen for World Book Day and the Richard and Judy Book Club, and she has taught for the Arvon Foundation, the London Lit Lab, Bath Spa University, and currently City University of London. Her memoir, A Place for Everything, was released in July 2020. Anna ran a masterclass on nature writing for us during our summer 2020 season, and this autumn we'll be leading a masterclass on writing for children. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for talking with me today on what was a really beautiful sunny day in Cornwall, but I think you just said that it's become rather overcast. Is that right? Yes, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, I woke up full of beans with lovely sunlight all across the garden and the mist has rolled in. So yeah, not quite so good. <laughs> so I must ask, I'm, I know that you swim all year round in the sea. And so I wonder, have you been for a dip this morning or did that not manage to fit in this time? I haven't managed it this morning. It's actually low tide this morning, which makes swimming a lot harder because there are lots of rocks and seaweed to navigate so unless it's very, very calm, I don't normally go at low tide, um, but I'm planning to go at lunchtime. Right. So it is, it's a daily part of your routine, is it, to go down to the sea and have a dip? Yeah, absolutely. All year round. Well, in the winter, perhaps not every day, because obviously the weather can put you off. But um, I try to go about three times a week in the winter and then pretty much from March onwards every day, sometimes twice a day. Wow. Do you go for particular reasons is it for inspiration or does it play a purpose for your writing yeah it definitely does I mean it's sort of become part of a routine now because of living by the sea but before I moved here I was swimming in lakes and rivers and I quite often go I turn up at these places often feeling quite uptight or you know things weren't working either with writing or something else and then I'd sort of plunge into the cold water and immediately everything would disappear because all you can deal with in that moment is how cold you are <laughs> and mm. what the state of the water's like. You know, is it flow, flowing fast? Is the current, you know, fast? Or if you're in the sea, you know, is it choppy or whatever? And you're dealing with that and it's just such an amazing way to be present. And it kind of it kind of tallies with writing because when you hit that flow state with writing, you can feel like that as well, just totally in the moment and everything else disappears. So the two things do sort of go together. Um, and on a more practical level, yeah, I guess sometimes if I've got something to think through, I might be swimming and just letting it kind of sift in the background, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I really, I know that many writers have said that about walking, that when you're walking, you kind of walk with the idea and you can walk through the idea. And And I know, yeah, I feel that about swimming, definitely, that there are times when, say, when it's a nice calm day that, it gives me, it almost gives me the space to work through what's going on on the page but then like you say the waves can be so different and the sea can have a different mood each day and does that influence your writing when you then go back to it 
Yeah, definitely. I think, um, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, I had a book published. And on that day, the weather wasn't great. But I was just desperate to do something to kind of remind myself that this was a moment that I needed to sort of celebrate. And the, the sea was so choppy. But I just sort of plunged myself in and just went, yeah, I've done it. I've done it. And the fact that the sea was so choppy and difficult to navigate, it kind of mirrored how I'd felt about writing the book. So it was just this amazing feeling of, if I could do this, I could do anything, plunge into the waves, you know, survive. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes, because you, so you had a book out a few weeks ago. Um, so this is summer 2020. And it came out round about lockdown. So how was that? How did you mark it? I mean, so you've said you went and jumped in the sea, but I know you had planned there were going to be launch events, there were going to be other things going on. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the book is and what it's about but also yeah how it was to release a book during a time like this yeah so it was very nerve-wracking when lockdown happened because um I write for children as well as adults and my children's publisher was phoning me up saying I think we're going to change your publication date we're not going to stick to your books coming out because we don't know if we can have the staff they're all furloughed and all the festivals being cancelled all the bookshops were shutting so um, yeah, my 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 first pitch book in 20 years that I was so excited about was actually then delayed till 2021. So I was sitting there thinking, oh, no, this adult book, my first book for adults is going to be ruined by lockdown. So I was in a real panic. And to start with, the publishers weren't really giving me any feedback on what was going to happen. So, yeah, so the book, it's a real first for me. It's called A Place for Everything, My Mother, Autism and Me. And as the subtitle suggests, it is about my mother's autism. Um, she was diagnosed age 72, which obviously is incredibly late in life. And uh, it had a massive effect on me and my sister and the rest of the family, really, just realising that it's it had given us um, answers and a reason for mum's sometimes quite unpredictable behaviour. And I'd been keeping a diary, as I always do, during all the things that we went through with mum as she became very ill with anxiety and depression and then um, ended up being sectioned under the Mental Health Act. And it wasn't a time really for enjoying creative writing because I was mm. up against it looking after her. And then sadly, my dad got cancer and died as well. So it was a really, really difficult time. But, you know, being a writer, writing it all down is how you cope with it. So I, yeah, I, I spent some time after dad died writing a blog about grief initially because I thought that's what I wanted to write about. I sort of felt there wasn't enough out there about, um, adult children grieving their parents mm. and I realized there was something a bit more to that really because of the autism and I realized that was the hook so that's what the book's about and yeah I was really really nervous about it coming out I also thought it might be too depressing to publish a book about this during lockdown when everyone's really nervous and worried about disease and death and all these awful things but actually um, HarperCollins stuck to their guns and we published on July the 9th which was the original date and it's, it's been amazing. I've had incredible feedback from people, not just friends and family, but complete strangers who got in touch and said, oh, you know, my daughter had a late diagnosis in her 30s or 40s, or I think I might be autistic, or, you know, I think my child might be, or whatever it is. And it's been really moving. I've been quite um, almost exhausted, actually. I shouldn't say mm. that because I was really ungrateful. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all the feedback, but it's been really tiring responding to everyone else's um sort of take on the book I guess so being able to run outside and embrace the beautiful countryside and throw myself into the sea is a lovely antidote to all the intensity of this book coming out. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I had an interview with Fern Cotton at some point in this summer, and she was talking about her Happy Place podcast and that change of people approaching her, not just to say, oh, what a glorious children's program that was, but to actually start telling her their personal stories. And I imagine normally you'd be at some events around the country and you'd be seeing people to face to face. And yeah, how is it to to not be having that connection, not just with your friends and family at the moment, but then to be having, yeah, even strangers be contacting you from afar. Yeah, that's interesting. I I really love events. Um, I've only ever done events for children before. I've done sort of masterclasses and workshops and things for adults, but in terms of actually talking about my books, I've only ever done them for children before. And I really miss that because it's lovely to sort of get all the excitement from them and the questions they have, and they're usually quite funny. And there's a real energy in that. And you feed off it as a writer. And I think one of the hardest things in lockdown has been I've had all this time to write, but actually because I haven't had any, you know, feeding off other people, chit chat, Mm. you know, even just having coffee with somebody, it's been really hard. And I think, yeah, I I was really looking forward to doing events for this book because I wanted to reach out and um, perhaps do some work with autism charities and things like that. And none of that's been possible. But on the flip side, you know, People have been just tweeting directly, just sending me lovely messages over Twitter and Facebook and even Instagram, and and that's incredible. You know, I I think that they're probably I, I suspect that's happening more because people aren't going out. Mm. I think it has changed the way people connect to one another and community in general broadening. Um, and I mean, it is interesting. You said, oh. I was worried that this was a bit of a dark book for a time like this, but actually it's something that really struck me was that the themes of the book were so prevalent during these days that themes of grief and loss. And I wonder, was it really difficult to be revisiting those in a kind of poignant time like now? But at the same time, obviously it sounds like it has been meaningful for others potentially because it is a time where those things and caring as a theme is really present with us all at the moment yeah I have thought a lot about that because I mean I did catch myself more than once thinking I'm really glad mum and dad aren't living through lockdown in mm. and going through what they were going through five years ago um because it was incredibly hard to get the right care for both of them there were lots of stumbling blocks because dad had a physical illness and mum had a mental illness it was almost impossible to get the two different parts of the NHS to talk to one another And I came across problems as well with the Mental Capacity Act because um, every time mum was assessed, she came across, she could sort of pull herself together for an assessment and she came across as a woman who knew exactly what she wanted and she was absolutely fine and she liked being home with her husband and that that was that. And so she was always assessed to be someone who didn't really need help. But literally, as soon as a care worker left, she would have a meltdown, which I now understand Mm. is is a factor of autism. And I would try and explain this this to people. I would try and phone the psychiatrist or a mental health nurse or whoever it was. And they just didn't really want to listen to that. And because dad was very ill as well and he was desperate to stay with mum, in a way that compounded it. I was trying to explain to them both that they needed care and they didn't really want it either. So I felt like I was imposing something on them. And if I was having to do that in lockdown when I wouldn't have been able to visit them, um, I just I, I just don't know how we would have coped. So I've thought a lot about that. And I think all the stuff around care homes as well and, you know, how a lot of people suffered really badly from COVID or died, you know, because they were in the care home, really. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm very grateful I haven't had to deal with any of that and that mum and dad haven't. But 
it has made me think deeply about people who are going through that sort of thing. So um, hopefully it will connect with people like that as well and make a difference. Yeah, I've definitely heard other friends say similar things. So you mentioned that when you were going through that really tough time that you didn't feel like you could really write and that the what you ended up writing about grief was just a blog at the time and was it just a release for you or did you feel like it might become something at the time? Yeah a bit of both it was a release but I didn't approach it as a complete sort of what I would call a vomit. (laughs) My diary is very definitely a vomit so it's morning pages of just splurging out whatever comes to, to mind and I'm not writing it for anyone else to read at all and I think the decision to write a blog, even if I didn't know who was going to read it and almost didn't care, I still wanted it to read as a bit of polished writing. So it was funny, each blog post ended up being around the same word count, um, even though I didn't sort of intend that. So I think the longest was about 700 words and it never was never shorter than 600 words. It always just came to that shape. But I would, yeah, I'd initially write down the thing that was on my mind and then I would spend some time polishing it so that it read like a little mini article, really. So I suppose I was thinking it was going to turn into something even though I didn't really know if that makes sense. Mm. So tell me about the morning pages. Do you find it's got the same kind of accidental structure or do you purposefully stick to two pages and maybe just describe a little what the morning pages are and what purpose they play in your writing life yeah like I've always done what people couldn't call morning pages since I was about seven I've had a diary and I've scribbled in it and and I'm not um so disciplined that I write in it every day uh but I quickly worked out early on in life that if I was going to navigate life and keep on a sort of even keel the best thing to do was to pour out all my rages (laughs) and worries Mm. and embarrassing moments into a diary um And yeah, it wasn't until I was sort of in my 20s that I realised that that's why I was doing it. It was a kind of way of staying sane, if you like. Um, And then when I was in, I don't know, maybe my 30s or 40s, I read a book called The, um, I think it's called The Artist's Way or something like that by Julia Cameron. And uh, I was, it was at a point where I, I was struggling with creative writing and I wanted some sort of words of wisdom and a friend recommended the book. And it's got lots of tips about how to follow a 12-week program to end up creating something. And one of her top tips that a lot of writers have latched onto is this idea of morning pages, where the first thing you do in the morning is you grab your diary and you just write longhand. And I think it's supposed to be three pages and you're not supposed to stop and think. You just literally write whatever comes to mind. So it can be disjointed, it can be lists, it can be anything. Um, but the idea is to just pour everything out. It's like a cleansing of your mind before you start the day. And yeah, I'd been doing that anyway. So I just kind of um, latched onto it really as an idea that would sustain me throughout my creative practice. So it's what I continue mm. to do. So it's journaling really, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's such a good way of clearing out your head before you start the day. It's so interesting, isn't it? I, I think I feel quite similarly to you that I used to do it when I was younger without knowing it and I remember at one point when I was doing a degree in creative writing and my dad said to me but are you a writer and I said well yes I am and he said but you don't write all the time does that make you a writer and I realized that I felt like I did write all the time because I always journaled each day just something but it wasn't creative writing as such but I think I always saw it as a part of me then being able to creatively write something a bit more structured later. 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I used to say to myself, particularly when I was a student and I was surrounded by people who were already calling themselves writers. And I was thinking, well, I really want to be a writer. But all the time I was writing in my journal. And I look back now and actually some of the things I wrote, they're quite funny little observations, which is sort of mm. what I've done in my actual published work anyway for, for children and, and even Place for Everything, a lot of it is observations about my family or remembered scenes of family life and things like that. And that's actually what I was doing in my journal. So, yeah, I will, I've always been a writer. So actually now when I go to schools and children say, you know, when did you become a writer? I say, well, as soon as I could pick up a pen, really, you know, that this, this magic idea that you're going to just become a writer at some point in your life. Actually, if you've always been writing, then you're already a writer. There's a difference between that and, you know, b- being a published author, which you know, it doesn't, isn't necessarily all it's cracked up to be anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and we have quite a determined idea, don't we, that we become things and that we grow up to be something. And it's quite lovely to think that it always played a part and that it potentially can change the part that it plays. So I'm thinking when you were writing these blogs and not quite knowing what they were going to become, and then during this time, I think, did you say earlier that you haven't really been writing in the same way at this time as well has it had a similar effect yeah I think that's absolutely right I, I started lockdown with this great plan that I was going to build on um, a true story linked with the house that I live in actually and I was doing loads of research I was getting really excited about it and then all of a sudden I hit a brick wall and I realized that I didn't know where the story was going and I it really got me down and I got into real lockdown mode of just thinking ah everything's crashing around me I can't think I can't read I can't do anything and I've come, I've come out the other side really now where I've realised that I still don't quite know where it's going to go, but I'm just going to write whatever comes to mind every day. So I start with morning pages and then I, I just start writing on the screen. It's all very disjointed. Nothing's joined up at all. Um, I've been doing this thing called the Writer's Hour um, most mornings from eight until nine, which is a free thing that you can sign up to with um, an organisation called the London Writers Salon. And they've been doing this through lockdown where they send you a link and you click on the link. You you go to a Zoom meeting with sometimes hundreds of people from around the world. And it's amazing. And you're all sitting in this Zoom room together writing for an hour. Um, Everything starts with an inspirational quote and then you kick off. You just write in silence. Everyone's muted. And then you come together at the end and you just put in the chat box what you've achieved. And, you know, sometimes I've written a chapter and I look back and think, oh, that actually is a chapter. And then other times I've just written a chunk of stuff, but I've sort of let myself go with it now. I was so anxious about mm. it a few months ago. And now I'm just thinking, I'm just going to write a load of stuff and I'll have some words at some point that I can go back and edit and decide whether they're going to turn into a novel or a nonfiction book or I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> Keep on. I mean, uh, that is something I think we have discussed before is that, is whether there's the same structure of how you end up writing a work, whether you learn the lesson of, oh, yes, I just collect notes for a long time and eventually it comes together or whether each new project still has its own way of coming about and that you have to let go into that. Yeah, I think, well, certainly that's true for me. It's always different. I mean, it sort of, it falls into a pattern after a while. So, um, some of my books have started with a main character whose voice is very strong in my head and I follow that thread and they become very real and I'm sort of talking to them while I'm walking the dog and things like that and I sort of follow their story and then I might pick up little scraps along the way so a friend might tell me something that's happened in their life and I think oh that would fit in really well and I sort of magpie that 
Other times it's a place that's been really inspirational. Um, so yeah, my picture book's coming out next year is based on a beach near here. And it was very much the beach that inspired the story. It wasn't a character, a human character. Um, but I have friends who are completely different about it. I have friends who are so disciplined. They, they have these, you know, planning notebooks and they know the structure of a novel and they slot it all into place. And I'm, I'm really envious of that way of writing. I wish I could be that organized, but I just can't. I've tried it and I, it's not me. I have to start with chaos and then. Hopefully, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle. I sort of do the bits around the edge and then fill in the middle and then hopefully I'll join the middle to the edge at some point. That's incredible. <laughs> I guess we all, yes, we all work in different ways. And it's nice when you, I'm sure there are moments when it doesn't feel as if you have a grip of it all. But when you know that that's the way that you work and you can therefore calm yourself and let it go in that way. I'm amazed. So you've said about place being uh a beach local to you being the inspiration for this children's book is this wide wide sea yes that's the one yes Yes, which is an amazing book that I think did you say is coming out 2021 yes I think it's March 2021 now yes right and that's a children's book I've seen the proof of it and it's got some incredible illustrations in it um but is so place was a particular inspiration for that book but does it play a part in all of your work would you say I I know you taught a nature writing masterclass for us this term and in your memoir I get the feeling that place is important as well but does it play a different part in each book or or how do you think place came to be important to you yeah that's really interesting in my early children's books they were all really suburban and they completely reflected my childhood which was in Kent um in suburban Kent and I would the things I enjoyed the most about my childhood were being near my friends. So I would get on my bike or run down the road to see my friends and I had total freedom. You know, I'd be out all day and nobody would know what I was doing. Um, And there was a little building site we used to play on, which we called the woods very glamorously, but it was literally just a building site (laughs) where we built dens and things. So a lot of my early children's books reflect that. And there's a lot of, you know, girls who are best friends who walk each other to and from each other's houses a lot and things like that. (laughs) That's how they build their friendships. And that's exactly what it was like for me when I was um, a child at home. Um, But as I, yeah, as the books have moved on, I guess because I've sort of moved away from that and I do live in a very rural place now, that has played more of a part. So I wrote a book about five years ago called Summer's Shadow, which is based here in West Penwith and um, very much influenced by the beach near here. I had this image in my head before I even started writing the book of a girl doing a massive swim right across the bay and it being one of those typical Cornish days, a bit like today, where it started off beautiful and the sea was really calm and then a storm rolled in and she was caught in the storm swimming. And I wrote that scene and sent it to my agent and she said, oh my goodness, there's a real story here. What's happening? Who is she? I said, I don't know. So I had to build the story around that. But I loved writing that book because I was living in Wiltshire, but coming to Cornwall a lot. And when I was sitting at my kitchen table in Wiltshire, my head was completely in West Penwith. It was just just a wonderful thing to do. I really loved, I kind of ran to it every day, that book. It was such a joy to write. And then since then, yeah, the picture book, that was actually another storm that got me to write that because um, there was a day when I was down here again before I moved here but I was staying in the house that I'm living in now and it had been a beautiful day and the beach had been really calm and really really flat that sort of real calm before the storm feeling when everything's so still and it had been just beautiful swimming in this glassy sea and everything 
And then that night there was a massive storm. I mean, a proper full on electric storm. The sky was cracked with lightning. It was just incredible. And we just sat at the kitchen table and just watched the storm through the window. And um, and it made me think about how um, a picture book needs a central moment that turns the story from the sort of the initial idea through to something happening and then a resolution. And I just thought that having a storm in the middle of a picture book would be so cool. <laughs> and then mm. I thought, well, you know, it does change everything, a storm, especially by the sea, because you can be on a beautiful beach one day, go down the next, it's covered in litter, you know, covered in plastic that's all been sort of thrown up from the sea. So I thought, well, actually, I could make a bit of a point here, you know, when I write the book about how we can sort of con ourselves into thinking that we live in a really idyllic place, but actually the sort of... Um, I don't know, the results of our human mistakes are all there mm. and nature can throw them up when you least expect them. So that is that sounds very grandiose, but that is basically what a picture book's about. It's about sort of our impact on the planet and what we can do to make a difference. And so I'm just trying to encourage kids to A, not throw litter away and B, to pick it up and recycle it whenever they find it. That's amazing because, yes, literally the tide's can turn and it is very interesting I'm noticing I mean this is my first year living down in Cornwall and the change of the human impact as you go through the seasons and as more people come down here is just so evident I know when I think well I know that you and I have both swam with seals because we've swam with a seal together but when you're alone in the winter and you're swimming you can feel that weight of nature and it having a grip and when the storms hit down here it's just so much bigger than you and then when it hits the summer and the tourism season there are just so many more people that the wildness can feel as though it's tameable but there is there is the evidence later isn't there I think that's so right I was thinking about that the other day because um I was talking with a friend about an awful tragedy that had happened near here not so long ago with somebody who I think they drowned it was really awful and um, we were talking about how you can come down on a lovely day and just think it's like a holiday camp. You know, it's, you know, the sea is there for you to enjoy rather than a wild entity with its own moods and its own you know, life. And actually, when you live here and you've lived through all the seasons, I think you have a much better appreciation of the fact that you have to respect it. Um, and certainly where I live, I mean, nature comes right into the house all the time. And, and it's it's almost like the house, I even wrote about this this morning, actually, in my morning pages. Um, the house kind of embraces that, you know, I mean, there are creatures in, living in every nook and cranny in this house. And the house just kind of goes, yeah, that's the way it is. And we can try and battle against all these, you know, the bats and the mice and the spiders and the flies and the swallows and the, everything that's nesting in the crevices. But actually, they live in it too, and the house has just let them. And I think that's mm. so Cornish. That's so Cornish. That's that's the way it is down here. It's just um, the wildness is untamable. <laughs> yes, and I'm I'm just thinking when you you said earlier about there being nothing to feed off at the beginning of lockdown, and and it sounds like nature obviously it kind of invites itself into your life and is something to feed off. But I'm wondering what else feeds your writing. So you normally there's people, and that's conversation that you find the snippets end up coming in or the observations and the nature do you have other activities that you feel are important as well for supporting you to have something to write about or to have the energy to write yeah I think well I think um traveling further afield is is good as well and the the trouble is at the moment I don't really feel tempted to do that at all 
within the past, I mean, one well, to be a very ex- extreme example, I went to Botswana a few years ago and I had recently written a little book called Monkey Business, which was about a little boy who was desperate to have his own monkey as a pet. And he went to a fictionalised Longleat and tried to steal some monkeys. Um, and I'd written that book and I loved that little character Felix so much. I was desperate to write a follow up, but I couldn't think of anything that he would do next because he'd done the most extreme thing I could think of. And then we went to, went to Botswana. And we had an amazing guide who was such a storyteller. And every evening he would, we would sit around the campfire and he'd have the children absolutely in the palm of his hand, telling them things about life when he was a boy in Botswana. And I just wrote everything down in my diary. And as I was writing it, I started to tell it from Felix's point of view, because I kept thinking this little boy would love to be here listening to these stories and seeing all the wildlife. And so when I got back, I wrote Monkey Madness, which was the follow up. <laughs> So definitely travel. Yeah, but I just don't feel tempted by that now. So actually reading, reading plays a huge part in writing for me. And again, at the beginning of lockdown, I couldn't focus on reading. I just couldn't concentrate. Um, And I gave up. I thought, you know, like a lot of people, I thought, I've got time. So I'm going to read a really big, heavy book. So I thought I'll read Hilary (laughs) Mantel because I love Hilary Mantel. So I started her new novel and I couldn't concentrate. So in the end, I read... A children's book for seven-year-olds that a friend of mine's just written called The Worst Class in the World, which is absolutely brilliant, and it just had me laughing my socks off. And what else did I read? Um, oh, I reread stuff actually. So I reread Notes from an Exhibition by about Patrick Gale, Summer in February. I just thought I'll read books about Cornwall and I'll just reread old favourites and try and kickstart my brain because it was just impossible at the beginning of lockdown. So I'm, I'm all right now. I'm reading again and I feel much calmer. <laughs> I absolutely had that same experience. It's, it's. I guess it's big periods of change, and when you're distracted and everything's moving so fast, it's hard to focus. But I mean, likewise, travel, travel, and reading—they're both very important to feeding my mind, so that I have output as well. I think it's, it's interesting. Everyone was saying at the beginning of lockdown, "Oh, this is this will be easy for writers because they're used to having a solitary life. They just stay at home." and look at their computer or write their notes anyway. And yet I haven't actually met a writer so far who has just found it simple or that it didn't affect their process somehow. No, I think that's right. I think, yeah, if I had been right in the middle of something and had already got to that flow state and knew what I was doing, it would have been fine. So if I'd been sort of at a second or third edit of of something where I'd finished a first draft... I would have been fine because you're absolutely right. The fabric of the day is exactly the same as it's always been. Get up, go to your computer, sit and write, take your normal breaks. You know, it's not like anything had really changed in that respect. But getting new ideas off the ground was just really hard. And I, yeah, like you say, I think everyone I've spoken to has said the same. It was such a relief for people to come out of the woodwork and admit that they weren't writing. Because I was sitting yeah. there on my own thinking, I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting my time. And then slowly but surely people would come out on social media and say, I can't do it, I can't read, I can't write. Mm. There is that expectation, isn't there, as a writer? When you get in that flow state and you have the wonderful experience of being able to write and write and write and write, it's easy to forget that there's also there are naturally periods where one isn't writing. Is having something new quite important to you to know that you've got a project on the go? Yeah, I'm not very good at taking a break from writing. I get very itchy if I can't get on with the next thing. And I get very moody and not very nice to live with. 
Um, I think it stems from, I've always seen writing as a job as well as a creative thing. So I've never been one to sort of wait for inspiration. Um, I think because I started off in publishing, so I was editing. So I always had one project followed by another and a lot of them overlapped. And then when I started writing more, um, I was also freelance editing. So I feel like I've had a constant stream of work since I started work. So to to then for somebody to say to me, oh, I think you need to take a break or don't worry about the writing, it'll come. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I can't, I can't, I can't just stop. I can't. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't really put it any more clearly than that. It's just a real it's mm. a physical need to sit down and write something, which is, I suppose, why the morning pages are good, because then at least you feel you've done that. Mm. Uh, but I, no, I feel the need to get deep into something and I, and I do love writing picture books but they're not as all consuming as writing something longer not for me anyway so um, I like having them trundling along as well but they don't take up my head space in the same way that a longer book does and I, I really like sort of living alongside my characters and thinking mm. about what they might do at any point in the day. <laughs> mm. And when you are living alongside those characters do, do you have quite a a structured schedule when you're writing a project when you've got your teeth really into it yeah I always used to have because when my kids were at school I would drop them off at 8 30 walk the dog or go for a run and then I would sit down I was always at my desk by 10 I would work until one have a quick break and then I'd work until three and then I'd go and pick them up and when they were little that was it then I didn't have any other time in the day to write so it was really precious so I was very disciplined and and actually, it took a long time for friends to understand that that's what I had to do, because I think they thought, well, you can just fit writing in whenever you like. Why aren't you coming out for a cup of coffee or, you know, having a day off? And and I'd say, oh, I've got a deadline, because I thought that was an easy way of explaining that I had something to, I mean, I did often have a deadline, but, you know, my deadline was probably six months hence, so I probably could have taken a day off, but I just never wanted to. To me, it was like, drop the kids off, sit down, do your work. Um, a lot of people didn't really get that. Uh, but I had to be that disciplined because that's the only time I had. And then school holidays, I couldn't really write at all. So I would have great swathes of time when I wasn't writing. Um, but then now they're they're growing up and they've left school. And I suppose over the past few years, the routine's changed a little bit because I've always had a little bit of time in the evening as well. So the challenge over the past year of being suddenly a mum with no kids at school is to realise that I have longer days and that I can't spend the whole day writing. So <laughs> I try and get mm. it done in the morning because that's my best time um, and try and do other things in the afternoon and evening. But sometimes I just I just don't want to do anything else. I just want to stay at my desk, much to the frustration of everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, the idea that people have of a writer in that I think of freelancers in general and that flexibility that it might offer and actually the importance of routine and not for everybody but or or maybe even being able to have the spontaneous ability to go and write when you need to write and if you are stuck in it then then letting yourself stay rather than going oh okay now I better go for that coffee it's it's really struck me that so many people have been attending these writer's hours every morning and I wonder what what is it for you about the community because it's just on a screen and it's just one hour and we could just do it alone but what what pulls you to come and join there? Yeah it's interesting because um I was sort of invited to come to one initially and I wasn't finding it very easy to get up at that point in lockdown so I was thinking eight o'clock I don't know but actually as the summer's gone on and I've just 
I don't know, settle into a different rhythm. I love the fact that I've got that appointment with writing at eight o'clock. And the fact that you're coming together with other people, it's, it, I suppose it's a grounding thing. It's a disciplined thing. It's like the school bell ringing and you sit down to do your lessons. It's a bit like mm. that. Um, and then I do feel if I've, if I've had that hour first thing in the day, I don't really mind then if I get disrupted later in the day because I've had that time to myself to pin something down. Um, yeah, so I think it's just space for yourself and discipline. And I, I occasionally before lockdown, I would go and sit in a cafe and write just to be surrounded by other people. Or the train was a great place to write because you have to sit and there's nothing else to do. I mean, you could read or listen to music, but, you know, that thing of I'm on the train you know, if you're going from Cornwall to London, yes. it's five hours, you can get quite a lot done. Um, so it was like that, really. It's that focus. Yeah. Yeah, those little pockets of time, they do definitely offer something, don't they? I, I always write when I'm on transport. It, and actually, it is something I really miss now is not getting transport for those little writing hours. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you ended up reading books about Cornwall. That's what happened. And um, that's to do with your current project is it are you working on a piece of fiction now well it might be non-fiction I don't know ah. so it started yeah it started off as fiction well oh it's difficult to explain it started off as non-fiction because I found a load of notes in my mother-in-law's cottage about her father who I've known a lot about over the years because she's talked talked about him a lot he was a bacteriologist and he was involved in trying to find a vaccine after the Spanish flu a pandemic um, and didn't succeed and there's a paper trail that sort of runs out in the 20s that has always intrigued me as to why he never quite made it or what happened to the vaccine or whatever mm. so I started off thinking oh I'm going to do lots of research into him and what happened with him and it's quite prescient because of Covid and everything and then as the pandemic went on I got a bit sick of reading about Spanish flu <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and I thought well no actually you know he came to this place this house in 1957 and that in itself is quite intriguing because he was Scottish and he worked he was absolutely wedded to his work until well into his 50s and then he fell in love with someone 30 years younger and came and lived in Cornwall so I thought well that's a story too so then I thought well I better fictionalize that because I don't really know nobody knows why he came here and how he met his wife and stuff because he was you know he was born in 1887 so all of his friends are gone and nobody really knows. So I thought, well, I'll fictionalise that. So I went, I, I wrote 40,000 words of a novel Wow! <laughs> in lockdown, which is all rubbish. And then I suddenly thought, actually, what's really intriguing to me is this house and the family and the people who lived here before. And then I thought, well, why don't I write about me moving here and then weave those stories in? So that could be, and then when I said that to the family, my son laughed and went, oh, memoir 2.0. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? I don't know. It, this is the trouble. I'm at that point now where I, when people say, what are you writing? I just say, well, I don't really know because I don't know where it's going to go. It could go back to fiction for all I know, but I'm just going to keep mm. going and see what happens. But it's such a tender stage of a book, isn't it? To be asked, what are you writing? And I'm absolutely sure that it won't be just rubbish that those wonderful 40,000 words. But like you said before, that your process often is building this bigger web and then finding yourself at the centre of it sometime later. And it is difficult when people ask you to pinpoint it. It's something I'm very, uh, well, I'm very impressed at in your career, but I wonder how it's been for you, the fact that you you do 
uh, jump genres and roles. You've been an editor, you've been associate lecturer at Basbar Uni, I believe, and you've been a tutor for various literary organisations, but then you've also written children's books, you are a nature writer, you've now written a memoir and possibly are writing adults' fiction. How do you find describing to people what you are as a writer and and how does it feel to to jump across so many genres? I just, I have never seen myself as writing a particular thing. And I remember quite early on, I'd had three or four children's novels published for sort of middle grade readers, so kind of seven to 11 year olds. And I had a meeting with the publisher and and I was already thinking about writing Summer's Shadow at that point, but I didn't know what it was called or who Summer was or anything. I just knew it was set in West Penwith and there was a big swim involved. And I knew it was probably for young teens, so kind of 11 to 14 year olds. And I said, so she said, what do you think you're writing next? So I started to try and explain this novel and I could see her face just falling. And I said, oh, um, you don't seem very interested. And she said, well, I was kind of hoping you might, you've written a load of books about dogs. I was kind of hoping you might come up with a series with cats. And I just thought, oh no, I just, I don't want to be that person who just does dogs and cats. And then what next? Guinea pigs? I mean, I just, no, Mm. I, I don't see myself as someone who, is I don't know a jobbing writer in that way which I that sounds very pejorative I mean there are a lot of people who do that thing sort of thing really really well but it's not for me I'm more interested in finding the story and where does it lead me and what am I going to write next um mm. if you'd asked me 10 years ago well if you'd said to me 10 years ago you're going to write a memoir I just would have laughed because I, I didn't think I had anything to say about my life because nothing had really happened so I never set out to write a specific story for a specific reader or genre or brand or whatever. I just kind of follow the story. And I think publishers are infuriated by that because what they really want to do is say, this is Anna Wilson, she does X. And um, I've had to, well, in the end, I've just had to go to different publishers to do different things, really. Mm. Well, I really admire it because I I do the same in my writing and I've I really struggle with the fact that people meet me and say oh so what do you write and at some point I thought okay I've got to stop just introducing myself generally as a writer but actually I was doing a nature writing scholarship with the British Council sometime last year and at the time I just had finished writing the draft of a novel and then during the scholarship I was writing a collection of poems which went on to be published and the tutor who I'd been working with said to me so what do you see yourself as? Are you a nature writer then? And I said, oh, well, I don't know because I'm now starting a novella and it's nothing to do with nature, I don't think. And he said, oh, but you're going to really need to fine tune what you are if you want to make it as a writer. And and yet I feel like there is something common that runs through my writing that it's not necessarily the same style, but it's 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 me and the fact is is if I find different forms that work with the different things I want to say I find it very hard to imagine limiting myself in that way and like you say I'm sure there are people who that very much works for but yeah it's interesting yeah yeah I think um when I had to do an author Facebook page I thought well I better have something in the bio that says what I do so I've sort of said that I write about families um because actually that is that is the thread through everything. So, you know, my young children's fiction is all about, 
you know, battling with your parents over, you know, as it happens, pets initially, but then there's all sorts of stuff about falling out with your best friend and all the things that are really important to you between the ages of seven and 11, you know, school, whether you fit in or not, whether you want to turn into a teenager or not at that sort of magical 13 age and all those sort of things. And then obviously my memoirs about family. So I, mm. I sort of say, I say that's the, that is the thread through everything. I'm not interested in writing fantasy. I, I mean, even my vampire books, they're not fantasy. They're, they are family. It's all about a little boy who doesn't get on with his parents and doesn't want to be what they want him to be. And he wants to find his own place in the world. And so I think that's, if I had to sort of put it in one sentence, I would use my Facebook biog and say, that's what I do. There we go. But, You've got your thread. <laughs> yes. And so the other children's book that I know that you have written or is coming out each year is the Nature Almanac. Is that what it's called? Yes, Nature Month by Month. So, um, well, that was very serendipitous, actually, because my dad had recently died and my mum was by then in a home. And I had written a picture book called Grandpa and the Kingfisher, which is about to be illustrated by Sarah Massini, which I'm very excited about. But at that point, it was just a text on a piece of paper. And my lovely editor from Macmillan had just come back from maternity leave and been snatched up by Nosy Crow publishers. And so I cheekily Mm. phoned her and said, fancy having a cup of coffee? Went to meet her and said, I've written a book. (laughs) Gave her my picture book to look at. And she said, oh, well, my new job is narrative nonfiction. And although my picture book, Grandpa and the Kingfisher, was, I mean, it was a picture book, so it was a story. She said, I think there's a nonfiction element here because it was about the life cycle of a kingfisher that's being watched by a grandfather and his little grandchild. And then as the seasons go on, the grandfather gets um, sick. And by the end of the book, he's passed away and the kingfisher has as well. But there's a sort of a circle of life thing where you see the new young kingfishers coming out of their nest. And um, so my editor was very excited about this. And she said, you know, we could do this as narrative nonfiction. But, you know, I'm new to this job and I've got to get it past my boss. And I and I know her boss and she she used to be my boss. She's quite tricky. <laughs> so I thought, oh, gosh, here we go. So she took that off. And then out of the blue, I got this call. I think it must have been from my agent saying, on the back of your Kingfisher idea, um, Nosy Crow have decided they want to do a nature almanac for children. And they think you could do it. And I just thought, that sounds great. I've never written any actual nonfiction before. And it was just so lovely because actually mum then died while I was writing the book. And it was the perfect book to write while grieving because it, it's divided into sections. And so there were, it was small bite-sized chunks that I could just about manage in between everything else. And it's fat, so I didn't have to engage with emotion. And I learned so much more about my natural environment I was living by a canal at the time and I just went for walks every day and it was January when I was writing it and made myself notice things about the environment that I would never normally notice in January because I don't like January very much normally and so um yeah it just it just took on this whole new way of looking at the world for me as well as the whole new way of writing and I really really enjoyed it and luckily, it sold so well that Nosy Crow have asked me to update it. And I'm on my fourth edition now, I'm just writing 2022. Oh, that's at the incredible. Um, and the National Trust publish it in conjunction with Nosy Crow. So they have it in all their shops, which is lovely. Um, yeah. And it's opened up a whole new sort of way of writing for me. So my picture books that are coming out are all sort of, they are basically narrative nonfiction. And um, they've all come off the back of that. 
That's so wonderful. I yes, I can't wait to gift it to someone next year. Have have many children in my mind. Um, <laughs> so you, the next workshop you are running for us is writing for children, another masterclass, and something I don't understand how it works in the writing world is: Do you write a children's story first, and then they match you up with an illustrator? Is that often the way that it's done? Yes, yeah, so I would never advise anyone to look for an illustrator themselves because it's a waste of time and possibly money. Um, the publisher has always got a very strong idea of what illustrator they want to use, and that's for a variety of reasons. It's mainly to do with how they want to sell the book in to shops and so on. Um, for picture books, it's extremely important to get the illustrator right because you have to try and sell the rights abroad. So you publish the book in the UK and then um, there's a, a team in a publishing house called a rights team and they go to book fairs like Frankfurt and Bologna and they go and visit German publishers, Portuguese publishers, American publishers and they show them proofs of the books that, that they've got and they say, would you translate this book? And if the illustrator isn't sort of international enough or doesn't suit a certain type of market, they won't take it. So an awful lot of thought goes into the illustrator. It's got to be someone who's going to sell here and abroad as well as being the right match for the story and the tone right. and everything else. So it's quite a skill. So, you, yeah, and, and often it's funny, actually, I've just had some roughs through for a book that's um, it's going to be published in the next year or so. And I don't really like the illustrations and it's a bit difficult because I wasn't asked whether I liked the illustrator before they started to do the roughs. And I've, I've got to stick to my guns, really, because it's not what I want. And I've never mm. had that problem before. So... Um, that's going to be interesting because you're not really supposed to have a final say on it as an author because you're not the one who knows the market and everything um, so yeah it can be difficult yeah because it's it definitely strikes me as it's such a uh, wow it's a huge thing to be passing your words along and having someone else work with them and I've worked with illustrators before but friends and where I know that we have that type of creative relationship that we can bounce off each other in that way but even with friends sometimes it's been difficult because what they produce in response isn't well it's never going to be what you imagine so in a way I can see that it might be better to have a professional but it must be yeah really interesting to see how differently your words are perceived by different illustrators and they all have such different styles and and it is something quite intimate for them to be responding to yeah and also of course it's their interpretation which is valid as well and they're not just right you know drawing to a brief I mean obviously they get a, a brief but you know what I mean they're not it's also their own artistic expression and you have to sort of bear that in mind so I mean sometimes it's absolutely dreamy so Jenny Lovely who's done the illustrations for the wide wide tree she just got it absolutely she was like she delved into my brain and just got the pictures out of my head that it was absolutely incredible and I'll never forget meeting her um, because we were having an initial chat about the book and I was describing the beach here and she was just drawing it in her notebook while I was talking and it just came to life. Wow. And, and actually we've had to slightly change it because obviously the beaches around here, a lot of them are very rocky because it's all granite um, and it was felt that for an international audience it needed to be more of a sandy beach and right. possibly not have great big chunks of granite all over the place. So it's <laughs> it's more of a sand dune beach now. But even then, she still managed to get an element of the sort of the, how the cliffs feel to me when I'm walking through the woods and things like that. And 
oh, and the, the, the seal diving under the water and all the beautiful anemones and starfish and everything she's done are just spot on. So that's just been a joy. And um, Ellie Yance, who does the illustrations for Nature Month by Month, I mean, her illustrations are just absolutely gorgeous. I said to her the other day, you ought to be making brooches out of all the butterflies and oh, dragonflies that you've drawn because they're so gorgeous. Um, and Vlad as well. I remember when I got the pictures of Vlad the vampire, I just thought, again, I mean, Catherine Durst lives in Canada. I've never met her. I never will. But she did this picture of Misery Manor and the inside of Vlad's bedroom. And I just thought, my goodness, you've just read my mind and I've never even met you. It's just incredible. So sometimes it is. It's really magic. Yeah, I can imagine. It's so, it's just such an interesting thing because normally there's always that moment when someone says they're turning a book into a film or a TV series where you think, oh gosh, do I want to see what the characters look like, how they decide it to show them and sometimes it really works out and sometimes it it really shocks so many people because part of the beauty of a book I guess is that we will interpret it in our way and part of the thing of being a writer is gifting something that is very particular to you but will be taken in many ways but when you actually have that illustrator then the marks are more clear. Yes. I think it's funny with picture books. I'm not so sure that children really latch on to the child character. I think that's probably quite a controversial thing to say because I know um, obviously it's very important that a child can see themselves in a book and there's a lot of discussion around diversity and mm. so on, which is absolutely right. But um, I think the the child is more of a vehicle for the rest of the story. So I think it's you're more likely, I think, to hinge on other things. So the tiger who went who came to tea, for example, I remember distinctly as a child just being so focused on the tiger that I didn't really care about Sophie and what she was wearing and whether she was like me. I, you know, I was it was the tiger and the teapot and various other things in the book that I was fascinated by, and um, where the wild things are as well. I, I didn't particularly see myself as Max, but I loved his little wolf suit and the monsters, you know. So I'm not sure. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you still have your own interpretation, even when there is an illustration of a child who's leading it. Yes. No, I think it's it's a really interesting point because I know we, we as the writer's block want to be diversifying our stories. So to make sure that all children can identify themselves in it, because when you listen to the story as a child, I think you do just embody the story, don't you? And and it that's quite a responsibility actually as a children's writer to to be writing something that a child is going to be getting lost in do you ever feel that strong responsibility of the world that you're creating for them to imagine yeah I don't know I, I I'm a bit worried that perhaps I don't think enough about these things because I'm always thinking about it from my point of view <laughs> as the writer um, I mean obviously I try and tailor things so that the vocabulary is you know the level of everything is right um and without dumbing things down. So I, I sometimes I do throw in the odd word that might be a little bit on the edge of what a seven-year-old might understand. But then I think, well, actually, that's half the fun of reading is going off and finding what something means. But I'm, I am thinking, yeah, I do have in the back of my mind, this is a book for seven-year-olds, mm. or this is a book for 11-year-olds. or whatever it is. But in terms of responsibility to read, I suppose I'm just trying to make the story the best it can possibly be and um, bring it to life in a way that will be engaging and that the reader can lose themselves in, but I'm not feeling a great weight to do that, if mm. that makes sense. I'm just kind of doing it for me so that when I read it back, I think, oh, I would enjoy reading this. Yes, and so many children have enjoyed reading all of your books, so I don't think you need to take on that new weight now that <laughs> I mention it. <laughs> 
Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was teaching as your final strand that you bring in. I feel like there's always a bit of a debate of can creative writing be taught and is it something that's learned? But I also know that I gain so much from the wisdom of a writer sharing their process or, you know, a conversation like today, for instance. Um, So I wonder how has it been for you to step into that role as teacher? Do you really enjoy taking on that role? Yeah, I absolutely love it. And I was quite reluctant to do it to start with. So um, it was, I went on an Arvon course about, gosh, 13, 14 years ago. And my tutor was Steve Vogue, who is a writer as well. And he afterwards um, got in, well, we got in touch with each other. And he said, how would you fancy doing some teaching at Bath Spa University? And I thought, what? I've not taught anyone anything. I'm not about to go and teach at university. This is terrifying. So I said, no. (laughs) And then he, he sort of kept on at me, he kept saying, I think you'd be really good at it. And I was thinking, how do you know that? You've, you've taught me, not the other way around. Um, anyway, bless him, he gave me some reports to do on some manuscripts. And I I found I really enjoyed doing it. And it's basically a bit like being an editor. It was sort of what I was doing as an editor, really, because you, as an editor, you get a manuscript in and you give your initial thoughts on the structure of it before you get down to the nitty gritty. And that's basically what I was doing with manuscripts from master's students at Bath Spa. And he sort of came back and he said, well, look, these are great. So, of course, you can teach. And he just kept on and on at me. And I did a couple of lessons where I covered for him when he was away. And then actually, again, this happened after um, mum and dad died. He It just, again, serendipity. He, he phoned me up and he said, a whole course has become available, a whole module. Would you teach it? And I just said yes without thinking because I just, I just needed to plunge into something, great. I think. So I took that on. And then another module came up at the same time. So I was teaching two modules it was a real baptism of fire, but it was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. And then from that, other things have come. So tutoring at Arvon and um, London Lit Lab and various other places. But yeah, the, the question about whether you can teach creative writing, it does come up a lot. And in fact, a friend actually asked me that the other day. And um, it's a valid question, but I think I th- and I, the answer I gave her was that, that it, obviously if you, there are some people who sadly will never become published writers. That doesn't mean to say they can't enjoy writing and that doesn't mean to say they can't get something out of a creative writing course because what it gives you is the tools and the techniques to hone your own work and whether that becomes publishable or not is a whole other question. Um, and I worry a bit about the two things being too linked because I think if a course promises that you'll be published, mm. that's a bit disingenuous because you, you can't say that for everyone. So there's that. But also I think publishing has changed so much over the past 25 years when I started working in publishing, agents had quite a sort of light touch in terms of their role. They would take people on to represent them, to find them a publisher. They wouldn't necessarily do an awful lot of work on a manuscript before it went out. They would just take something they thought had potential right. and then try and place it. And then the editor would work really hard and long on that manuscript And sometimes it would be almost a germ of an idea that was then worked on with the editor. And you'd develop a relationship with that editor and you might stay with them for quite a long time. And then uh, over the years, publishing has become so much more commercial that books have had to be sort of churned out a lot quicker, I think. And um, that relationship has changed. So the agent does a lot more work initially and then the editor perhaps doesn't do quite so much work as they used to do. So I think... You have to get a manuscript into a slightly better shape mm. before it's ready to go out. And having that tutorial relationship with somebody, if you're doing a master's, 
it can really help you get your manuscript into a better shape before it's sent out. So I think the whole landscape of publishing and writing has changed and now creative writing courses play a much bigger part than they would have done 25 years ago. Yeah, I think that's such a good point that you make. And I know for me, a huge value of it was um, of, of learning creative writing was getting the feedback and the opportunity to be learning how to offer feedback, how to receive feedback. And at first it felt a bit like, oh, but I want to be learning my craft so that I can do my craft better. But then what I realized was it was learning to tune my kind of inner compass of of being able to recognize myself, what needed more work and what didn't. And often people would all feedback the same thing, which always felt quite remarkable that everyone had actually picked up on something as a similar thing to work on. And I would realize, okay, hang on a second, that's really valuable. I couldn't see that myself. But then at other points, someone would say something and and I would have to learn how to ask myself whether that felt true to me that I should work on that area or not. And I guess, again, it's like you were saying about the writer's hour, it's all these spaces that we can give ourselves as writers to be able to to work on our craft in in a slightly more structured way or or have time to reflect on it perhaps. Yeah, I think that's so valid what you just said about the feedback because I think if um I think one of the the, the most frightening things as a writer is receiving editorial feedback. Mm. And I I've just had a load actually on something and I I can't read it yet and I've just said to the editor I haven't got the headspace for it so I'm going to just leave it for a bit. And then I'll come to it when I'm ready and then I'll probably read it all through and then put it away again before I actually pick up a pen and do anything about it. Because your initial reaction is, oh, no, I've spent, you know, so much time with a full mile into this and you've just got your red pen out. Mm. And, and it, you do need to sit with it a bit because, as you say, a lot of it will be right, infuriatingly so, because you might have to take the middle out and rehash it all or remove a character. Um, but a lot of that will be right. And then some of it will be a question of interrogating that and thinking, well, that might be your point of view, but mm, I'm not so sure. I have to say 90% of it is usually right, even the bit that I'm still struggling with. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've got a good editor and you've got a good relationship with them, they usually are. Well, as one, one of my friends put it like this, they said, um, a copy editor is like um, a very diligent um sort of cleaner who comes into the house and lifts all the cushions and hoovers underneath and gets rid of you know moves all the furniture and dusts underneath the photo frames and all of that so that when you walk in you just think wow everything's really neat and tidy and everything's in its proper place but an, a structural editor is someone who just makes the place look the best that it can look when you've finished with it yourself your brain on its best day sort of thing mm. and I think that's so true and I've had both experiences I've had an editor who is definitely my brain on its best day where I've just gone oh, oh my goodness you're right about everything this is just incredible how have you done that and then I've had other editors who've kind of wanted to be the writer of my work and they've gone through and, and they've moved everything to the point where it looks like they've moved out and they've moved Gosh, the furniture, out, yes. the furniture in <laughs> and that's just been horrible so yeah, learning how to manage all of that and having the space to do that on a course where the um, the impact of that is fairly low risk because you're not actually about to publish, yes. so you're not putting it out there. I think that's really, really valuable. Whereas, you know, when you, once you get to that stage with an editor, you're on a bit of a roller coaster towards a publication date and you perhaps haven't got the time to really interrogate everything and worry about it quite so much. So I think those courses are really, really valuable. Mm. 
it's amazing. I mean, throughout this conversation, it has just made me think what a what a thing it is to be a writer, how many opportunities there are for someone else to move into your space and to shift things around and move out. So with the illustrators, with the editors, with the feedback, with just putting it out into the world and not knowing how people will receive it and with the reviews. And yes, and yet all of it came from you at some point and probably from quite a soft place in you. And I guess we learned to I don't know if we learn to toughen up with it or just learn, like you were saying, about getting into the right headspace to be able to let it go like that. Yeah, it is. It, every time it's hard when a book goes out there because there's going to be someone who doesn't like it or who doesn't get it. And I mean, it sounds a bit precious, but it is a bit like putting your baby out into the world. You know, mm. spent so much time nurturing it and, you know, getting it into the right shape and knocking off the bad bits and... <laughs> And then you put it out there, it's the best that you can possibly do. And then someone goes, you know, well, I didn't like the mother or whatever. And you think, oh, how can you say that? <laughs> um, but of course, as readers, we do that, don't we? So, And that yeah. can be something that's really important to remember, isn't it? Well, Anna, thank you so much for speaking with me today and for sharing your varied and rich writerly life and all of your experiences and yeah, we really look forward to working with you again oh, very it's soon. Been such a pleasure. I can't wait to do another masterclass. It's really good fun. Thank you.